Hello and welcome to Myth the Ladies, the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We are your hosts. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Zoe. Lizzie, how goes it? Um, I'm pretty good. It's well into fall now and I have been doing a little bit of baking and not much else. How are you? Good. Is it cold over there? It's quite cold. How cold is cold? Le- okay, it's not bad. It hasn't gone below freezing, but I'm cold. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, right now it's pouring rain, and I stepped into like a river on the way here, so that's where How? I'm at. I don't know what the heck's going on, but it is raining very hard, and that is difficult when I have to walk everywhere. But it is what it is. Like the episode of The Office where Michael drives into the like. I mean, not really, but yeah. I've been watching The Office. It's because it's I know. just gone on Netflix. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so my shoes and oh, socks right. are very soaked. And uh, yeah, we can mention that in a second. I I'm talking about my life. Right. right. No, I just literally <laughs> forgot till right now. So I was like, oh, continue. anyway, yeah, my shoes and socks are very soaked. And I am currently barefoot in the recording well, that room. That sounds so miserable. <laughs> because I want them to dry off a little, but they're not going to because life is hard Your life is such a farce um, anyways <laughs> anyways uh lizzie what's our exciting news this week oh so we have been doing this podcast for like over a year with no money well without making money we have made mm-hmm. no money and now we have decided to begin accepting donations and we set up a Kofi page uh-huh. which is like Patreon, except that you can also do one-time donations or monthly or whatever you choose. And we would really appreciate it, but we can't at this time offer bonus content because we are very busy. Yeah. So it would just be out of the love of your hearts. Yeah. That was so a just... horrible pitch. No, it's okay. Uh, you can <laughs> consider compensating us for our labor or not. It's up to you. And uh, the costs that expend such as the maintenance of the website and equipment etc but also if you don't that's also okay but we would appreciate it if you can we know that the majority of our audience are in our in their 20s so like we understand if you can't do it (laughs) you know so Um, completely yeah all right so that aside lizzie who are we talking about today so when this episode airs it will be almost hanukkah So, today we're going to talk about Judith. Oh, exciting. So, out of the two of us, you were raised Catholic, Mm -hmm. so you know more about biblical stuff than I do. So, what do you know about Judith? Um, Judith was a warrior lady. Nope. Um, No? You don't know that much. That's great for me. No, she was not a warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Uh... (laughs) Okay, starting. I think it'll ring a bell. Well, she. I know she killed a guy. She decapitated a guy. Her husband was a warrior, and she decapitated a guy. No, her husband was not a warrior. Listen. No. Listen. (laughs) Listen. 
I only so really close. know New Testament. That's the thing. Okay. And then. anyways. Okay. <laughs> okay. Are you done embarrassing me now? Is it over? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So she is from the book of Judith, which oh. is a deuterocanonical book considered part of biblical canon by the Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Oriental Orthodox churches, but not by Protestants, and also not included in the in Jewish canon. But it's kind of contested its place in the canon because it's not like part of the Hebrew Bible. But yeah. So mm-hmm. it was written sometime in the later 2nd century BCE, likely by a Jewish writer. It was found in the Septuagint, which is a collection of biblical works written in Koine Greek. But scholars debate over whether the language used is Greek, translated from Hebrew, or else purposely Hebraicized Greek. Mm. Um, many scholars are certain that it was originally written in Hebrew, but others say like that's not like certain. Um, because, well, for one reason, if it had been originally written in Hebrew, then the author was most likely from Palestine. Whereas if it was written in Greek, then they were probably from the Jewish community in Alexandria. In which case, the geographic inaccuracies would be more understandable because the historical and geographic details were so off that a Palestinian author would have had to be very ignorant of their own country to get those details wrong. So okay. in that way, it's like... That makes sense, yeah. Are we sure that it was written in Hebrew? So yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so this uncertainty is part of why its place in biblical canon is disputed, as well as because it was written relatively late and because of the seductive nature of the story. Mm. Yeah. So it's 16 chapters long and named after the principal character, Judith. Um, so her name comes from the Hebrew name Yehudit, meaning Jewish woman, which is a feminine form of Yehudi, which just means Jewish person and can also be used as a masculine first name. The setting of the Book of Judith is supposedly Assyria and Babylonia in roughly the 6th or 7th century BCE. However, scholars generally agree that the events of the book align with events and figures from the Hasmonean dynasty about five centuries later. Okay. Because of the clear influence from this era, the work is unlikely to have been written before about 150 BCE. So, mm-hmm. shall we get into the story? Yes, we shall. <laughs> okay, so... The Assyrian king, Nebuchadnezzar, was in a war against Arpachshad, king of the Medes, who were an ancient Iranian people, and called upon many of the surrounding lands to help him battle. But most of them denied the request. So he decided to wage war upon those that refused, which included the regions of Judea and Samaria, which were located in the present-day West Bank, and sent his general, Holofernes, to attack them with thousands of soldiers. Mm-hmm. Holofernes and his army successfully annihilated many smaller cities, then came to the city of Bethulia, which was the main thing in their path to get to Jerusalem, which is, of mm-hmm. course, the holy city. So it was important that Bethulia not fall, because then they could get to Jerusalem. Yeah. So they first cut off the water supply to the city, and then Holofernes talked to Achior, who was an Ammonite king. And Achior warned Holofernes that the Israelites are protected by God, So if they have been faithful to God's word, then Holofernes will not succeed in conquering them. Mm -hmm. Then Holofernes commanded some servants to bring Achior to Bethulia, where he told them of Holofernes' plan, and they began to fear and pray. So now we are introduced to Judith. Judith has been a widow for three years after her husband Manasses died of a heat stroke while overseeing barley harvests. Okay, that's a lot less dramatic death than I thought. Yeah, he's not much of a warrior. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it's a valid, it's a valid job. I mean, but... yeah, farming is important. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she spent her days in solitude, fasting. But when she heard of what was going on, she invited some elders and Ozia, the governor, to her house and chastised them for their lack of faith in God. Ozia asks Judith to join them in praying for rain. But she said she has another idea, but she won't tell them what it is. Hmm. After purifying herself and praying, she changed out of her mourning clothes for the first time in over three years and put on perfume and jewelry and braided her hair, and she and her maid left for the city gate. The Assyrian men took her into custody and asked where she was from, and she replied, I am a woman of the Hebrews and am fled from them, for they shall be given you to be consumed. So they took her to see Holofernes so that she could give him advice on how to conquer them. Judith said to Holofernes, I will declare no lie to my lord this night. So basically she allowed Holofernes to believe she was talking about him when she said, my lord. But she only has one lord, God. So she could serve Nebuchadnezzar because he meant nothing to her and she could say things like that it brings her joy to serve her lord till the day of her death. Mm -hmm. But be completely deceptive while not actually lying or betraying God. Wow. So So yeah, she's really smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Holofernes was pleased with everything that she said and allowed her to stay with him. She stayed there for three days, and each morning she and her maid would leave the camp to pray and then come back. And then on the fourth day, Holofernes intended to dine with her alone with the plan of seducing her. Mm. They ate and drank, and Holofernes drank so much wine that he passed out, at which point his servants left them alone in their tent. And then (laughs) Judith took Holofernes' sword and beheaded him. Whoa. Yeah. So then Judith and her maid, with Holofernes' head in a sack, left the camp under the guise to pray. So obviously, like, the guards let them out because they had been doing that for days. Mm -hmm. But then they continued back to the gates of Bethulia. She showed her people Holofernes' head, and Akiora confirmed that it was indeed the head of Holofernes, and he fell at Judith's feet, then decided to convert to Judaism. Nice. Yeah. So, Judith told the Israelites that the army should attack in the morning, at which point the Assyrians would go to wake their commanders and find Holofernes dead, and then begin to panic, and then the Israelites should attack, and they would be victorious, which is exactly what happened. And then her people praised her and praised God, and afterwards, Judith went back to her life of seclusion and lived to be 105 years old and was then buried in her husband's tomb. Wow. The end. Well, interesting. Thoughts. Lots of thoughts. So it's really interesting because this whole story is about devotion to God. It's not, mm-hmm. it's less about, well, I'm assuming it's Holy Fernies. They're not Jewish. Are they, they're not Jewish? No, no, they're not Jewish. Okay, then yeah, it is about a war, but in a war of the sense of a war against Jewish people versus not Jewish people attacking them. And so it's less about like, oh, who's going to win in this fight? Like the valor of warriors and more about serving God and being loyal and true to your faith and being mm-hmm. able to keep your faith. Which is really cool. Yeah. But also, it's not necessarily a pacifist story. You know, it's very much, you know, she beheads the guy. She goes and... Yeah, it's bloody. It's bloody. She shows them, she conceives their strategy to attack um, the army and destroy them. Like, there's still fighting. But, and, you know, it's showing, like, the relationship between, like, the struggle to keep your religion and, you know, the general mm-hmm. struggle of war and, like, a time when, like, being invaded in general is, is, like, a thing that happens relatively often. 
And then also, I think it's interesting about Judith's relationship with her husband and her relationship with God, mm-hmm. in that they seem to be like the most important things in her life and almost like synonymous in a way. Mm-hmm. And because she has been mourning for three years, she's been a very faithful wife doing all the proper mourning proceedings of, you know, living in seclusion, uh, fasting. And then when she finds out about this threat to like her community and her faith, then she comes back into the community and springs into action to save them and save their ability to practice their faith. And then once that's done, she goes back to where she was before. Exactly. Like she only yeah. comes out of her seclusion in order to like save her people. Yeah. Like she's very pious and faithful. Mm-hmm. Faithful isn't the word you say when you're full of faith. Anyway. But, but yeah, she's yeah. very devoted to God and to her husband. And she she doesn't do it just out of pure, like, bloodlust. She mm-hmm. like, really wants to save her people, and she knows that her god is going to protect her. And, and mm-hmm. that is what happens, and everything ends up going great, and everyone celebrates her. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, like, as we said, it's a very clever way of completing the task that she sets for herself. Is she exactly. is keeping herself faithful to God, who she loves and holds as the highest thing in her life, and also is able to defeat this commander that stands in the way of her safety and her faith's safety. Yeah. And I think that's, that's super interesting. Very cool. I agree. There was a long period of time where the Book of Judith seems to have disappeared from Jewish tradition. For example, the Book of Judith didn't appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contained over 200 biblical texts. And it also wasn't mentioned by Jewish philosophers at the time, like Philo or Josephus, who both lived in the 1st century CE. Mm -hmm. Then, in around the 10th or 11th century CE, Judith begins appearing in Jewish literature again, over a thousand years after the Book of Judith was composed. She started appearing in tales and poems and commentaries on the Talmud, and it was around this time that she began to be associated with Hanukkah. Because oh. nowadays, she, her story is told on Hanukkah, even though the events of the Book of Judith are not directly related to um, the events celebrated on Hanukkah. But, yeah. It makes sense. Because the... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very a sort of story. Yeah, it's a similar story. Yeah. Very cool. So Judith's story was in many ways similar to Judah Maccabee, whose story is mm-hmm. celebrated at Hanukkah, and who also beheaded a military commander during the process of defeating a cruel king. And, you know, Judith is like the feminine form of Judah, so... Yeah, so that's very interesting. Two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and Judith also has a lot of parallels to Esther, the heroine of Purim, because mm-hmm. they're both beautiful and seductive figures who save their people from the threat of a foreign ruler. And mm-hmm. Hanukkah is also associated with... Both holidays are minor Jewish holidays, not mentioned in the Torah, but they came about in the Second Temple period. Since Purim had Esther, Hanukkah ended up being assigned its own heroine, and Judith began to be associated with Hanukkah, especially in medieval literature, where she appeared in many texts. Interesting. And the tradition of eating dairy products at Hanukkah was likely inspired by Judith. Because in some of the later tales, she encouraged Holofernes to eat a lot of cheese, which then made him thirsty, causing him to drink more wine. That's really passed funny. out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so when Judith started appearing in Jewish literature again, she was changed in a lot of ways. Usually mm-hmm. the basic plot points are the same. Judith's city is besieged, so she meets with the enemy leader, who attempts to seduce her, arranges a banquet, gets drunk, and is murdered by her. But aside from that, a lot of details are changed. A lot of times, Nebuchadnezzar and Holofernes are conflated into one figure, who is an enemy king and the military commander threatening their city. And sometimes Judith is younger and unmarried rather than a widow, 
There are a few Mm. other changes. And there are also some changes that appear to take away her power or agency. Uh For example, in the book of Judith, Judith is presented as someone who receives messages directly from God, whereas in some of the medieval tales, she's presented as a descendant of prophets. So her importance comes from her lineage and their relationship with God rather than her own. Mm -hmm. Also, in the book of Judith, her beauty and intelligence and cleverness are praised both by the narrative and by her people. But few of the medieval texts make note of her positive attributes. And a lot of the time, she doesn't even get a word of praise from her fellow Israelites. Mm -hmm. In general, Judith's reception in her city is less positive, and her people often question her and disbelieve that the head she's holding is actually Holofernes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and one, they're like, did you just find that head rolling around (laughs) on the streets? Uh, As you do. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, as happens. I mean, who's to say? We don't live there. True, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> another change that appears in several of the medieval versions involves the introduction of another female character, the sister of Judah Maccabee, sometimes called Hannah. Oh, Not yes. to be confused with the other biblical Hannah, who was oh, in okay. Samuel. Never mind. It's different. I've heard of the biblical Hannah, and I was like, oh, no. It's a yeah, different, different Hannah, different I guess. Hannah. Cool. In the events leading up to Judith's beheading of Holofernes, the enemy king enforces a rule of use prime noctis. You know what that is. Wait, prime noctis? Yeah. Is that when they sleep with the woman on the wedding night? Yes. Okay. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So it's a thing where an important enemy minister reserves the right to sleep with a bride before she sleeps with her husband on their wedding night. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So Hannah is soon to marry. She does not want to comply with this law and have to sleep with a Gentile minister. Mm -hmm. So, at a pre-wedding party with family and friends, she removes her fancy party clothes and either dons rags or tears her clothing and appears naked in front of the party guests. Hmm. Her family and friends are scandalized and embarrassed by her behavior and wish to punish her. And in one version, they even wish to burn her at the stake for her indecency. Wow. Hannah condemns them, saying that it is the men of the family who should be ashamed because they're willing to have her be defiled by a Gentile man, and she suggests that they should kill the minister. Oh. Which she's so right. I like when people are like, I'm not the one on trial. You guys should be ashamed of yourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so then Judah ends up beheading the enemy minister, throwing his head into the Greek camp and killing many other people. And the assassination of this official is what causes Holofernes to arrive at the scene, which then leads to Judith beheading him. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is just a version. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ones that, like, associates it with Hanukkah. Yep, for sure. Yeah, so in both of their stories, Judith and Hannah are surrounded by male relatives, but are frustrated by their lack of action and choose to take matters into their own hands. They both face the prospect of having to sleep with a Gentile man and act in a seemingly shameful and provocative manner, and are challenged by their townspeople. In the story of Hannah, and the story of Judith, specifically in the book of Judith, there is an overt threat of sexual assault, as Judith prays before going to meet Holofernes, because she knows that there's the chance of her being raped, and the significance of the beheading is layered with the idea of retribution for sexual violation. Mm-hmm. In addition, some medieval tales make a direct reference to the story of Tamar, who was assaulted by her brother Amnon by making Holofernes say to Judith, Come lie with me, my sister, which is the exact line that Amnon says to Tamar. Hmm. Are you what is, where is that, that story? story from? Yeah, no, I'm not at all. I don't know. Yeah. Uh-huh. The Bible. Uh-huh. So in this way, both Hannah and Judith's stories involve retribution for potential sexual assault. Although, luckily, neither woman ends up actually being assaulted, which mm-hmm. is good. 
Mm-hmm. So Judith is a common figure in Renaissance art where she's usually mm-hmm. portrayed either beheading Holofernes or holding Holofernes' head, often accompanied by her maid. Do you, mm-hmm. like, do any particular paintings come to mind? Yes, there's two. There's the one where she's, like, leaning back, and then there's yes, the think... Artemisia Gentileschi one where yes. she's, like, fully involved in the action. Yeah, I think the first one is the Caravaggio one. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure who had done it. Well, there was a lot, a lot of different artists who painted her. Yeah. This was part of a larger common trope in Renaissance art, referred to as power of women, which depicted, oh. <laughs> which, de- which depicted men being dominated by women, sometimes in a comedic way, and it was a way to show that women can master even the worthiest of men. Interesting. Other frequent depictions included Samson and Delilah, Yael killing Cicera, and Phyllis and Aristotle. Do you know the story of Phyllis and Aristotle? I've never heard of this before. Well, you're going to get a kick out of it. (laughs) I'm excited. I hate Aristotle. Oh, good. (laughs) The tale of Phyllis and Aristotle is a cautionary tale about seductive women, where Phyllis, the attractive daughter of the king, makes Aristotle crawl on all fours while she rides him like a horse, showing (laughs) showing that even the most intelligent of men can be helpless in the face of a woman's wiles. Bold of them to state that Aristotle was intelligent. Anyways... (laughs) (laughs) but yeah you should just like google phyllis writing aristotle there's tons of art (laughs) oh my gosh this is a lot it's clearly just meant to be like look at what women can do even aristotle isn't immune you know (laughs) yeah i mean it's very funny it definitely also just feels very misogynistic because it's all about yes emasculation and like the dangers of women and also (laughs) like all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly meant to be like, look out for women. Don't let them, like, get any power over you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely was not about female empowerment. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> but um, anyway, <laughs> Judith either beheading Holofernes or carrying his head was depicted by Donatello, Botticelli, Titian, Michelangelo in a corner of the Sistine Chapel. Oh. As well as Caravaggio, Rembrandt, Artemisia Gentileschi. And some more modern artists like Gustav Klimt and Franz Stuck. Interesting. Yeah. Judith's story has remained consistently meaningful for hundreds of years among Jews and non-Jews, depicted in art, literature, and music, including uh, pieces by Mozart and Vivaldi. Huh. Yeah, her story is super famous. Yeah. And it's persisted even after a thousand-year disappearance and became more relevant after she began to be associated with Annika. Do we have any idea why her story came back into popularity after so long? I, I don't know, because for a long time, it like it just disappeared like it wasn't being mentioned at all. Huh. So... That's really weird. Like, we don't know what happened. But then suddenly it became popular again in the huh. Middle Ages. Wow. That is odd. It is. Um, Deborah Levine Guerra in the Jewish textual traditions says, The apocryphal book of Judith is undoubtedly a Jewish work written by and intended for Jews, and Judith is portrayed as an ideal Jewish heroine, as her very name, Yehudit, Jewess, indicates. Similarly, Kevin R. Bryan writes in The Judith Project, Judith's success against all odds epitomizes the charter myth of Judaism itself cultural survival through the commitment to the preservation of the Mosaic law or the help of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so her piousness and devotion to her Jewish faith and loyalty to her community are what drive her and lead her to take action when no one else is willing to. She Mm -hmm. is 
A perfect example of a Jewish heroine, motivated by her faith and able to use her intelligence to save her people. She thought of a clever plan to infiltrate the enemy camp and then perfectly crafted her language to suit her needs, persuading Holofernes while also swearing devotion to God. Mm-hmm. And she also used Holofernes' vices against him and then killed him with his own sword. Ah, yeah. Which was very cool of her. That is very cool. Very symbolic for sure. Mm-hmm. I was honestly thinking about the depictions of Judith, in particular, you know, the art of Judith um, beheading Holofernes is often considered like this big girl power symbol, you know, like, oh, she's mm-hmm. a cool woman. She's killing this man. Like, she did this herself. She commented about the plan. But ultimately, in this way, by putting Judith on that pedestal as like, oh, this badass like feminist woman or whatever, it's divorcing her from her relationship with her faith, her relationship with Judaism, and how mm-hmm. that was such a significant part of motivating her to perform these actions and to commit these deeds. And I think that it's honestly a shame, and I think that is like something that should be avoided to be honest because i think that decontextualizing her from her religion in that very significant moment of her decapitating holofernes is basically taking away the most significant part of like the story like as you said she is like the i mean yeah jewish heroine most important thing in her life was her faith and that was why she was doing this it wasn't like to make some sort of, you know, badass feminist statement. And, like, that doesn't mean that what she did wasn't, like, super cool and powerful. And obviously it was really great and really important because her community was able to defeat this army in battle afterwards. But, like, she did it because of her faith. And Yeah, I mean, she's, a, she's like, a pretty classic biblical hero in that, she, like, her faith is what drives her and, like, she's rewarded for her loyalty to God. Yeah, and I think, I mean, just in general, like, asceticizing her like as a person or like as a symbol and like divorcing her from her faith is it's not good i think that we should remember how important judaism is to judith and like keep those two together i think that's important yeah i definitely agree and i also think that her depiction in art is interesting because i feel like a lot of the scenes of the beheading are like not quite how they're painted like she's usually she looks more like aggressive and then like Holofernes looks like he's just like suffering whereas I feel like in the story it was like she killed him in his sleep and it wasn't Mm -hmm. like a huge dramatic moment Mm -hmm. but that's how I imagined it at least and also a lot of the times she's standing with her maid which I read is partially just the Judith iconography. It separates her from Salome because I guess their iconography is like a really similar, but the maid doesn't appear in Salome. That makes sense. Um, yeah. But it's interesting, yeah. And I think like people have talked about this. I'm not an art history expert, um, but in like Caravaggio's depiction, I think she is like, like I said before, she's like leaning back from it. She is sort exactly, of- Exactly, yeah. If I remember correctly, because it's been a while since I looked at this painting, she is, like, distancing herself from the action of decapitating Holofernes in a major way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. She's, like, not into the act at all. She just does not want to be doing it. Yeah, it's like Holofernes smells really, really bad, and she is trying so (laughs) hard not to smell it 
smell him at all while she's like cutting off his head she's leaning so far away from him yeah and meanwhile with the artemisia gentileski painting she is right in the action she's holding him down and like cutting his throat and it's a lot more graphic and a lot darker and also the significant yes is that that's the gentileski one right yes yeah is a lot darker because you know artemisia gentileski was a woman exactly and she's like i think the only woman out of the list of the classic painters yeah who have painted judith and yeah her painting is so it's so nice it's like really powerful it's less Mm -hmm. i don't know passive and like as opposed it also has the maid in it which we just talked about but like it's just a sort of like you know two women who are in the process of getting the job done which is cool exactly they look like uh, two women with a plan yeah they are they're just getting their hands dirty yeah which again, like, she's still, like, as you said in the original story, he was asleep. She probably didn't have to hold him down, especially if he was passed out from, like, wine, but... I mean, that's how I picture it. She just brought the sword down and... I mean, yeah, him. like, that probably was wasn't... Drunk. That probably wasn't too hard to do, to be honest, once he was passed out. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, it's a good... It's a cool image. It's a cool painting, but yeah. Great painting. Definitely, like... Even thinking about, you know, the idea of women in power and that being depicted in the Renaissance by predominantly male artists in a way that's often like, yeah, in a way that's often like kind of misogynistic. It's interesting to see like how they depict the woman's relationship to the act of violence and power that they're committing for sure. Yeah, and I feel like on a surface level and, like, viewing it from now, it's like, oh, cool, girl power, like, cool lady, badass, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's like, from what I've read, like, at the time, this wasn't very, like, oh, cool, female power. It was, like, look what women can do to, like, worthy men. Like, clearly women are, like, so powerful and we need to, like, protect ourselves. And also, like, the Renaissance was a huge time for anti-Semitism. I mean, definitely. I mean, so is the Middle Ages, but, like... So is just most of the history, (laughs) but... Um, but so that, I mean, that just is going to play more into the story of like, Judith is beheading Holofernes to save her people, the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. She's a woman. She's Jewish. None of those parts of our identity are sympathetic to the Renaissance audience of Europe at the time. Yeah. And so therefore, like, is she, is she meant to be the good guy in the painting? Or is this a picture mm-hmm. of a man suffering because of like the wiles of women, um, and particularly like a Jewish woman, you know? Yeah, like are the painters of like the Renaissance and the Baroque era picturing themselves as more in like the role of Holofernes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. And that's another reason why it's important not to dissociate Judith from her Jewish identity. Exactly. I mean, her name means Jewish woman. Like, it's very important to her story that she is Jewish. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's a really great story. It's super interesting. I really liked every like all the information you had about the story. I liked this the con the historical context that you had. It's really cool. Yeah, it's a great time. And I didn't realize that she was associated with Hanukkah, so that's super cool. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think it's cool because I mean, like they said back in the day, like in the middle Middle Ages, they like wanted a heroine of Hanukkah. So they were just like, well, Judith is pretty close, which honestly is true. Like her story can also be associated with the story of Judah because their stories are like really similar. Yeah. And um and her story is very like classic Jewish David and Goliath defeating yeah. the big enemy type of story. Absolutely, yeah. And so yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Hope everyone who celebrates has an amazing eight days. 
And yeah, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to subscribe, leave a review, recommend us to your friends, donate to our Kofi. Yeah. And we'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. The Ladies Podcast is produced by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. Today's episode was researched and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythalLadies and visit us on our website at MythalLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thank you for listening. See you next time.